Hey, listeners, to help keep delivering in-depth wine business content, we've carefully selected partners for our show that we think will resonate with you. This episode's partner is Sonoma State University's Global Wine Executive MBA program, which is one of the only MBA programs in the world with a focus on the wine industry. Today, we're talking to Tim Wallace, adjunct professor of wine business and former president of Benzinger Family Winery. So why should people consider taking the wine executive MBA program at Sonoma State? Beyond the fact that it's the only place that you can take a wine executive MBA is the fact that it will, I believe, give you assurance, confidence, and greater potential to advance your career in the wine business. You will be surrounded by a cohort of other mid-career professionals, most of whom do have direct experience in the wine business, and surrounded by a faculty singularly dedicated to advancing the cause of the wine industry. Don't forget, if you're interested in learning more about the business of wine, the next Sonoma State Global Wine Executive MBA program starts in October 2021. Apply by June 30th to transform your wine career. Learn more at wineexecutivemba.sonoma.edu or look at the link in our show notes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Kevin Sitters, founder and president of VinConnect, who is pioneering mailing lists for European wineries in the United States. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I was wondering if you could tell Peter and I a brief overview of your background and how you got into wine. Yeah, I moved to the Bay Area in my prior career probably 25 or 30 years ago. And just in the context of being out there and uh, being a professional, having to do dining and entertaining with clients, got to learn a fair bit about wine. I got sort of immersed in the culture and then became a huge consumer just in the time that I had spent there running up to Napa on weekends and, you know, building a wine collection, joining mailing lists and doing it the way a, a lot of folks in California do. So that was really the start of my interest in wine and then making the transition from my, my prior career in finance into the wine business kind of came much later. So Kevin, you founded VinConnect. When and why did you do that? So VinConnect started about a little over 10 years ago. Uh, I had moved to the East Coast and was still on the mailing lists of a bunch of California wineries but really had taken an interest in a lot of wines from Europe. And in the context of that and in experiencing the challenges of finding the wines that uh, I wanted to buy and to collect from European wineries that I was fans of, I recognized that there wasn't really an easier, convenient way for me to do that. And at one point, the light bulb essentially just went off, which was, oh, geez, I'm on all these mailing lists in California why can't I have that same relationship or experience with wineries in Europe? I did some poking around and figured out that that was a thing that didn't exist, but it seemed like it should. And I set about trying to figure out what that opportunity might look like and whether there was a chance to create a business to help wineries in Europe deliver that same experience. So that sounds like a, you know, a novel concept in terms of we know wineries here have it. But And that's their method of going direct to consumer. But with foreign wineries or wineries in Europe, they have an importer. So can you walk us through a little bit about like how this concept is working in practice? Like how is that different than, say, a domestic mailing list? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And there are different levels to that or layers to that answer. But the short version is from the customer experience, it feels exactly like being on a mailing list of a domestic winery. 
So you would sign up either on the winery's website or potentially if you had visited the winery in hospitality, uh, they would have your email address. Some weeks or months later, a couple of times a year, you'd get an email from the winery with a list of wines that are available for purchase and you know background and description of the vintage and pictures of the winery and winemaker. You'd use that to go to an order form and order your wines. And several weeks later, you'd get a box at your door delivered from the winery with the wines that you ordered. And so from a customer experience standpoint, it feels exactly like it would be had you joined the mailing list of a California or Oregon or Washington winery. And what we really do is work in concert with the winery as an extension of them managing things like communications and logistics and customer service and taxes and compliance and all of the, the uh, stuff under the hood, if you will, to help them deliver that experience to the consumer. And so VinConnect's role is really the facilitator of, of all of that uh, challenging stuff that keeps them from being able to do it themselves in the way that wineries in the U.S. do it themselves. Okay, so the wineries still have the connection directly to the consumers, but are you importing the wines for them? Or are you working with importers? Like, how is that different? Right, so the, the technicals of the logistics really sort of depend on the nature of the relationship we have with the winery. So again, we're typically working hand in glove with the wineries on planning, strategy, communication, pricing, those sorts of things. But as it relates to the physical logistics, it really depends on the nature of the winery's existing channels in the U.S. So there are two basic models for wineries outside the U.S. One is to have a single national importer where all the wine comes into the country through one person, and then from then it gets sent on to distributors in the various states and to retailers, restaurants from there. The other model is to go what's called direct to distributors, where there isn't a single importer, where the winery is selling direct to distributors in all those different markets. So instead of having one relationship with the U.S., the winery might have 30. In the cases where there is a single national importer, generally the wineries want us to buy from that one person. So even though we're coordinating with the winery on the marketing aspects of the program, logistically, we're buying from the importer and picking up the goods at the importer after they're already here. In the case where the winery is selling direct to distributors and they've got 30 relationships in the U.S., in those cases, we're just another direct relationship for the winery and we're sort of the 31st relationship. So there, we're taking possession of the goods at the seller door and managing the importing ourselves and then the rest of the process. Got it. Makes sense. So some of the main benefits of U.S. mailing lists is having a relationship with the winery itself, right? And it could be explicit benefits like exclusive offerings or better pricing or the ability to visit the winery. But a lot of it, too, is just having a personal relationship oftentimes with the owners or the winemaker or, you know, at least the customer service people or the mailing list people. What are the key benefits of that for VinConnect? Yeah, so it's, again, it's very analogous to, as you said, a domestic mailing list relationship. I mean, the dynamics are a little bit different because it's, you know, at BV, there's a private tasting room for mailing list members where you can bring your guests up and host them. And obviously, you know, we can't all get on our jets and go to Champagne and have private salons there. But the fundamental benefit, again, is the same as it is here, which really is convenience, which is to say that if you have a wine in particular that you collect or a winery whose wines, you know, you want consistent access to for whatever reason, this is a very simple and easy way to get those. You don't have to go find the wines. The wine actually finds you, basically. And so the notion of, for 
busy people with a lot of stuff going on for wines that they know they're going to want. Simply having that direct relationship makes it easy to get the wines you want when you want them, never miss a vintage and those sorts of things. The, the never miss a vintage point is an interesting one because I help some friends buy wines and we try to buy the same vintage every year, but it's actually really difficult to do even when you have the inside look into retailers because the distributors are just selling what they have on hand. The retailers are just selling what you have on hand and it's hard to actually collect the same single wine year after year when you're not buying it direct from the winery. You know, one of the uh, sort of apocryphal stories in the, in the founding of VinConnect is I've always been a huge fan of Domaine de Pego and I had a relationship with a local retailer here and they would get six bottles a year. And for a couple of years, I was, you know, the wine would come in and I would get it and I'd get to take the six bottles and that would be great. And one year I knew it was sort of the season was going to be happening. And so, and I was going to be out of town. And so I called the retailer and said, Hey, don't forget that it's about time for the Pego to come in. When you get it, make sure you hold it for me and I'll get it when I come back. And sure enough, I came back, you know, 10 days later and stopped by the store. They said, oh, it came in and then somebody bought it and it's gone. I was like, it just, that shouldn't be a thing. And, you know, we, we do live in a world now where wine searcher is a thing and where, you know, customers have more availability of information and access about where to find things. So yes, today I could go on wine searcher and maybe find somewhere else and, and have the wine shipped to me. But it's just more work and more inconvenience to be able to do that. And look, again, there are a large segment of wine collectors are, are very self-actualized and creative and resourceful. But for you know an even larger segment of the, the wine consumer population, they've been to uh, the south of France and met Laurence Ferraud and had her wines. And they may not be super savvy consumers, but they were there on their honeymoon and they want to have that wine every year on their anniversary or they've got a vertical in their cellar. It's just a, a much more convenient and easy way for them to have and maintain that relationship. And beyond, again, just sort of access to the wine, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of other benefits sort of back to your original question, which is things like relationship, as you said, sort of what does that mean? But certainly customers appreciate receiving communications directly from the winery written by the winemaker, signed by the winemaker on winery letterhead. That relationship also extends to, to things like special treatment and hospitality. Again, we get to France less often than maybe we get to Napa, but still having the opportunity to go there and be recognized and understood and appreciated for your purchasing and support of the winery through time is certainly something uh, a segment of customers appreciate. You know, another big deal is provenance, particularly in the kinds of wines we're typically dealing with. Notwithstanding you know, the whole Hardy Rodenstock scandal and the Rudy scandal, there's just an increasing proliferation of uh, counterfeit goods all throughout the wine industry, you know, across all sort of continents at all price points, curiously enough. And so provenance is important, not just that the goods are real, but also that they've traveled through effectively winery approved channels. You can buy 20 year old Bordeaux that came to the US in gray market and you don't know where it's been or how it's stored or who's had it or what condition it might be in when you get it. But again, having a direct channel Again, with intermediary stops, but from the winery through their approved channels and onto the consumer is something I think that a lot of people appreciate. We do, from time to time, depending on the winery, have special goods, items, formats, vintages that aren't either broadly available, aren't, you know, may not even come to the U.S. market, that are things that consumers who are on the mailing list can get access to that aren't available more broadly. So all of those are other sort of attendant benefits 
that come with having that direct relationship, again, just like the things you get here in, in the U.S. So when you have the mailing list, is that mailing list is a term of art, I think, for the wine industry that has history behind it was an actual piece of mail that went to people's house with like an offering on it, but has evolved into what I prefer to call allocated offerings. And now oftentimes you may have what's called a quote unquote mailing list. That's just an email newsletter or maybe a, a release of wine that doesn't have that allocation part and that scarcity element. Are your wines allocated or are they just offered? That's a fair question, and we probably use the less sophisticated version of that, so merging those two concepts together. So it's both wine availability and an allocation. It really depends on the particular winery, the particular wines that are being released. Oftentimes, there are purchase limits associated with items because there are availability limitations, if you will. Oftentimes, there are not. It just sort of depends on which winery, which items, and and what kind of things we're talking about. But generally speaking, it it works the same way. Now, you know, we do have a couple of wineries who run club programs. Again, and the way I think about that slightly sort of differentiated is, you know, that's sort of the different business model where the customer's providing their credit card in advance. There's a regular program. It's a fixed quantity of wine at a fixed price on sort of a fixed, consistent schedule. The, you know, obviously that's a different business model for the winery and, and a little bit of a different value proposition for the customer. But the VinConnect infrastructure works sort of exactly the same way, where we're collecting the goods, transitioning them into the U.S., repackaging them, and getting them delivered onto the customer through our infrastructure. And what kind of wineries are best suited or, or most prevalent, I guess, on your platform? With VinConnect, we really are targeting wineries that have a, a high-profile presence in the U.S. market as sort of flagship representatives of their regions, I guess I would say. The idea being not so much that we're curating some kind of a list like an importer or a retailer might, but more that you know the wineries for whom a direct-to-consumer channel to complement their traditional channels is useful is wineries who have a big existing consumer presence, where they're brands that customers know, they're collectible, they may be harder to find, higher in price. If you can get it at the grocery store, you don't need to be on the mailing list to get it, is sort of the idea. And so generally speaking, our wines are among the leaders in their regions in the various major wine-producing regions outside the U.S., have been in the U.S. market for a long time. They get reviewed and generally very high scores in the major publications, they're typically the higher end, smaller production, higher priced wines in the portfolios of those wineries. And things that are just more sort of generally collectible might be the way to think about it. We do have exceptions to that depending on the wineries. But generally speaking, you know, if you looked at the roster that we have, you'd see many of the leading names in many of the most prominent regions around the world as folks where this makes sense. So you are looking for scarcity. You are looking for like, so something like a Bordeaux class growth that has quite a bit of production probably wouldn't necessarily be on VinConnect, but something like a rarer cuvee from a Rhone producer might be on there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it that way. No, I mean, it really okay. is sort of brand following. So if Got it. if it's a brand that people who are wine collectors know and would like and would find convenience for from having that relationship, then that's a good fit for VinConnect. If it's something that hasn't ever been distributed in the U.S. and no one knows about it, then we really aren't in the business of creating customers for wineries. 
people here sort of direct to consumer and there are people that have sort of direct to consumer models who build huge businesses doing that where they're out discovering things and bringing them to the US market that people haven't heard of and part of their value proposition is you're getting it direct from the winery so it's sort of a discount but their pitch really is I'm an MS I'm an MW I'm an expert I have access. Trust me. Trust my palate. You've bought other things for me. That's why you should buy this. And so they're creating customers for wines that customers have never heard of. And that's we, we do sort of nothing of that sort. What we do is we sit here and say, you know you like Domaine de Pego. You know Laurence Ferraud is awesome. You know who she gets great scores. If you want an easy and more convenient way to buy it and make sure that the goods are real and they're safe and they're handled well and those sorts of things... This is a way to do that in addition to all the other ways you can already do that today. Okay, so that's a great segue into how do customers learn about mailing lists or, or VinConnect? Like, how do they sign up? Or is this something that you are doing through the winery, something that you're bringing to a consumer base? Are you converting the winery's existing list segmentation for the U.S. over to VinConnect? Like, how does the customer get involved? How do they actually yeah. learn about these mailing lists? Sort of all of the above, though you, you touched on uh, you touched on a number of the good points. You know, first and foremost, it really comes from the winery. So, to the extent that wineries have been capturing customer information in hospitality, that's a great that can be a great existing base of names with which to sort of germinate the mailing list for their VinConnect program. To be honest with you, most wineries outside the U.S. until the last couple of years have not been sophisticated at all with that. Among your listener base, I'm not sure how many people have had the opportunity to do wine tasting outside the U.S., but it doesn't look at all, generally speaking, like Napa Valley in terms of its level of sophistication or hospitality or any of those things. It's maybe Napa Valley 40 years ago, two sawhorses and a, a plank of plywood and a couple of bottles and a wine key. And so most of our wineries, until they created their relationship with us, really haven't had any kind of systematic way of capturing customer information. And, and one of the value adds of what we do is to help them build that and organize that so they really can take more advantage of the hospitality services that they're providing. And so that can be the best source of winery information or of mailing list information for wineries. We encourage all of our wineries to put signups on their websites, which most of them, again, historically have not had, to capture people's information for a newsletter or mailing list there. And then in addition to use their other social media channels to drive consumers into signing up for the mailing list as well. You know, we like to say that Instagram and Facebook are great ways to connect from a communications perspective with your customers and share marketing messages to a degree, but they're not very long format and you can't sell wine, at least today, in Facebook and Instagram. But if you have the customer's email address, you can. So I get how Winery can build their own list. Is there cross-pollination? So is there a VinConnect list? Like if someone's doing the Pegal and then they're and they're also wanting to get on the onto the Reos list or something like that, would you do some cross-pollination between these groups or do I exclusively own my users and my email list? Well, so there are a couple of different ways to sort of come at answers to that. So from the winery perspective, each winery list is separate. So we have 65 different lists and there is no cross-communication at the VinConnect level. And I think that the sort of the metaphor for that is if you go out to Napa and you, you go to Camus, you don't want to start getting emails from Silver Oak the next week saying, hey, we'd like to sell you wine as well. 
So each winery sort of has their own separate list and there isn't any cross-pollinization to that. Now, any customer can sign up just like you could anywhere with, with on one list or 50 lists or all of the lists. And so the other way that we attract customers to circle back to the prior question is on our website, customers can sign up for any number of lists that they would be interested in. And so, you know, we do have customers who come to sign up for one and maybe they found it through a Google search or some other way and they see that there are other lists that they can sign up for or probably the largest cohort in our customer base is people who were looking for one wine or have one relationship that they want to have and they're on their one list and they get two emails a year and that's kind of all they want. So we try to be very, very careful and judicious about preserving the or respecting the, the sort of the IP, if you will of our wineries and their individual customer relationships. And so there isn't really any cross-marketing that goes on at all, other than the one thing that we do is when we do a new winery launch, we batch up when we have new wineries to sort of introduce new lists that are open. We'll send an email to the entire VinConnect population, basically just noting for people that, hey, here are some new lists that are open. If you're interested and want more information, feel free to sign up. If not, you know, don't worry about it. And so that our existing population can, if you will, seed some people onto new lists that we open. But after that, it's really names that come from the winery. And then we do advertising in Google as well. So that if people are out searching for these wines, if they type in buy Clotet Tart, they'll see an advertisement that says, hey, you know, Clotet Tart has a mailing list. You could buy direct from the winery. Go here and sign up. And of those channels, do you have an approximate like percent or how big are each of those? Is it mostly winery, mostly Google search? It just depends on what the winery's existing sort of hospitality and and marketing infrastructure looks like. Mm -hmm. Today, in aggregate, more of that information comes from us than comes from the wineries. We do have winery partners who have become more sophisticated at that and are capturing that. Although, you know, over the course of the last 15 months, wine hospitality is not a thing. (laughs) So there is no wine tourism. It has not been any. But we've taken that period, our wineries have taken that time to institute a much more sort of formal and systematic process for capturing that information. So when hospitality comes back and people are traveling again, they'll be in a position to really be more organized about it and systematic about it. Because, you know, as you can imagine, if you visit a winery in the U.S., you can't be in the tasting room more than five or 10 minutes and someone saying, give us your contact information, join our mailing list, be in our club. And without having a reason to do that, really, these European wineries haven't really worried about that very much. And it's fascinating, has been fascinating to me in the 10 years of InConnect to see wineries who are have started to do hospitality and understand the value of investing two or three hours in a potential customer and opening 200 euros worth of wine and delivering this wonderful experience and then sort of letting them walk out the door and crossing their fingers that it was all worthwhile someday, you know, two weeks from now when they get back to America, they'll buy some stuff. And so uh, being able to help them make that connection and get uh, a return on the investment they've made in hospitality that's a little more direct is something that, that our partners have really welcomed. So how often do consumers hear from the wineries? Is it the actual winery or is it VinConnect that sends the message? The wineries decide everything about how they want to operate their program. So how often they want to communicate, what they want to say, how they want to say it, which wines to make available, how they want to price them, and all of those things. The emails effectively come through our servers. 
but they're developed by the winery, approved by the winery on winery letterhead. So it really is their communication plan that we help them execute. I would say our typical winery maybe does a couple of releases a year, let's say two releases a year. It, it really ranges from maybe one release a year to, to maybe as many as four. But you know, it really is driven by and, and catalyzed by the wineries and whatever sort of release schedules they have for their new wines or their special projects or the other things they want to share. And obviously, if, if, if a winery has other communications they want to make in terms of news updates or an announcement of an anniversary or we open a new tasting room, you know, all of those are things that can and do get communicated as well, although maybe not as frequently as you might hear from your domestic winery who... Yeah, it seems like uh, increasingly people want to be in my inbox about every three weeks here in the U.S., unfortunately. Yeah, that was actually my next question because historically mailing lists have been only sales focused. And to the degree there's a little bit more marketing, I think people are willing to get more than two or three times a year messaging, but not every day or <laughs> every yeah, week. Yeah, it, it, and it's a challenge. I mean, we encourage our winery partners to find other things to communicate about other than just releases. But again, you know, we, because they're less dialed into this and less experienced with it, we generally have to do that thinking for them. They're less opportunistic and creative than you might think. You know, good news is people are getting better and better at this with their adoption of social media. So now they're thinking about, hey, I need to take a picture of this or it's harvest. We need to send something out. And so sometimes we can leverage off that as well. But oftentimes it's we have to listen closely for opportunities and encourage them to take advantage of them other than uh, just waiting around until the releases come out. I was wondering if you could give us a couple examples of some of the offers that you have been provided from wineries via VinConnect. I think that will help ground what are we talking about in terms of like what are consumers actually seeing? Do you have any examples you'd like to highlight? The typical release from a winery is, you know, the new vintage of whatever the wines are that they produce. And so with a Burgundy producer, let's say, for example, of Vincent Jardin, who we work with, they do a release of the whites every spring, the new vintage of the whites, and the reds every fall. And in general, it's typically five or six or seven different Appalachian wines, you know, from across their production because they make dozens and dozens and dozens of both reds and whites. And it's wines that you would be familiar with if you were a customer of their portfolio. So everything from village level wines up to Premier Cru and Grand Cru. So a variety of price points and again, sort of villages that's representative of the wines that people really sort of identify with them and their brand. So new vintage of the core product set is probably the most typical release from a winery. Beyond that, there are a number of things that do come up with some frequency. So we have a number of wineries that have varying levels of library wines in terms of how far back and different volumes of those things. And so not all of our wineries have that, but for the ones that do, oftentimes every year, every other year, there's an opportunity for a sort of a seller library release that gets uh, access to things that have typically never left the winery that have sat there for 10 or 20 years and create opportunities for customers to get a hold of those. Uh, and again, those kinds of releases are a place where provenance becomes really, really important. Since these things were sold 10 years ago in the US market, they might have a few bottles here and there on Wine Searcher, but who knows where they've been and how they've been stored and, and what they're all about. Some of our wineries make uh, bottles in a variety of formats. And so we take advantage of that and can pass those along to customers. So if you're a person that especially likes half bottles or is a, a Magnum maniac or three liters or whatever, we even did a release for a, a nine liter bottle for one of our producers. 
Those are things that can be more accessible through this channel than they are at retail. Traditionally, uh, a number of our winery partners, they produce those things, but we're already talking about wines at the high end of the market in terms of prices to begin with. And then you sort of put a, a large format, double price or premium on that. And those are things that oftentimes the importers or distributors won't even take here in the U.S. market because they just know there's not enough volume for them. So being able to access those things when they're available, we have a number of customers who really appreciate that. And then there are, you know, the other kind of strange and wacky or interesting opportunistic things that come up. And again, it's not with every winery, but once in a while, there are really, really interesting things that that arise that you literally can't get anywhere else. We just recently did a uh, the initial release for uh, Johannes Leitz, his Rieslings in Germany. And for a couple of years, he was out of the U.S. market. And so his mailing list is getting access to his 17 GGs, which were not sold here and you cannot get, for example. You know, another neat thing about that is several years ago, Domaine Louis-Michel and Chablis decided they weren't going to produce Magnums in a year for a particular year, but they came to us and said, well, if you think the mailing list would like them, people can order them and we'll custom make Magnums for the mailing list, which is, I mean, super cool. And the one other example I'll give you is something that was really, really special is for years we've worked with Chateau Moussard. And as you know, those wines have, have a very passionate following a lot of which was driven by the founder, Serge Hoshar, who was sort of an icon of the wine industry and really the flag carrier for Lebanese wines for for many, many years. And and you guys may know the story that he sort of tragically passed away in an accident a couple of years ago. And in the year following that, uh, his sons who took over the winery decided to do a release of a sort of commemorative package of wines that were from the 1989 vintage, which was Serge's favorite vintage. And they packaged up an 89 white as well as an 89 red, but not the regular Musar 89 red. Surge, because it was such a great year, created a bottle that was 100% Carignan that was never released from the winery and had sat at the winery this entire time. And so the special package was a two-bottle collection of the 89 white and the 89 red, which was unavailable to get anywhere. Now, those packages were available and a few of them sort of got out into the channel, but those were made available to the mailing list customers and people went, went crazy for them. I mean, we we sold some, it wasn't a huge number because the wines were very, very expensive, but people really responded incredibly strongly and emotionally to the story of Surge and this vintage and it happened during the war and the bombs were dropping and they were harvesting and the weather was perfect and he didn't really know what to do. So he made the Carignan, but he never sold it to anybody. And it was an amazing, wonderful, heartwarming story. And And even if many of the customers didn't pay the large premium to access those wines, you know, we got dozens and dozens of comments back to the winery's release email that just said, you know, what a great story. We love you guys. We love your wines. We're here to support you. You know, it was very touching. And, you know, it's really helping wineries facilitate that connection from both sides. I mean, the customers love that opportunity to interact in that way. And the wineries love actually having the ability to know their customers and communicate with them directly, which is something they've historically never had in the U.S. market. To get your message to the customer in the U.S. market is a game of telephone between winery, importer, distributor, retailer, maybe restaurant, maybe customer. And, you know, oftentimes the story that comes out the back end of that about a wine or a person or a grape or whatever is, you know, markedly different than the story that the winery told in the first place. 
No, that's a great analogy. I, there's a lot of takeaways in that statement. I'm a huge fan of what Serge did for Lebanese wine. And yeah, I'm curious on, so let's just use that as an example. So you have this special allocate, this special offering. How are allocations set for the consumers that are on the list? Is that, I mean, I'm assuming if everybody on the list wanted to buy that, you wouldn't have enough to go around because it sounded pretty rare. So is there an allocation? Is it first come, first serve? Are you giving it to the people who have bought regularly? How are you chopping up that rare offering to your consumers? Right. That's a good question. And it really depends on the circumstances of any particular release, exactly how allocated it is, how much demand we, we think we can forecast. It's more of an art than a science, I would say. You know, wineries, mailing list releases, excuse me, are generally not first come, first served. That's much more of a retail thing than a winery thing. So, we try not to do that on their behalf because customers, that's not the feeling you want to engender with customers you want to treat specially and make them feel like they have access. So we use our sort of art and experience in trying to figure out how best to allocate whatever wine we do have available if we have to do that. We don't have any wineries today that are consistently sell out 100% of what's available with every release like Harlan or Screaming Eagle and have a wait list and those sorts of things. You know, someday we hope to get there. So we don't have issues like that yet. But, you know, ultimately, if we got into a consistent pattern of that, that would be one way to manage those things. So so typically, you know, we use our judgment and experience to set allocations that we think will be the right mix of getting the wine as broadly available as we can, but also allowing people to get, you know, a meaningful amount of bottles if they need to. And case by case, things happen. There are only five bottles of this. And so if you buy six bottles of the main wine, you get one of the high end thing. Occasionally, we will do some things like that. But it's pretty rare. It just sort of depends on the individual circumstances. Generally speaking, it's easy to get six bottles or a case or whatever it is of the things that you want, and in some cases, volumes beyond that. So we don't run into too many situations where things are limited in such the way that you know people just can't get what they want. So are there any benefits for consumers that cross winery boundaries? Like if I buy a ton of winery A, do I, can I get access to the special thing at winery B? Again, you know, we really don't do that because that then gets into, you know, marketing one winery's wines to another winery and, or to another customer of another winery. And so in ways that retailers might be more sophisticated with marketing programs like that, we just don't do those things because we just don't think it's respectful to the wineries. That being said, you know, we do have some special benefits for, for customers who are on lots and lots of lists and buy lots and lots of wine from BinConnect and that sort of operate at the, the corporate level, if you want to say that. And that's, you know, access to certain things and access to trips that we do and, and things like that. But generally speaking, we, we don't do any kind of sophisticated cross-marketing because we just think that works against the priorities of our individual winery partners. And, and I'm sure we leave money on the table doing that, to be honest with you, but we really think that's what customers want and that's what our winery partners want for us not to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're offering, if there was a way for people to see the overall VIN Connect list and have like a central sign-up, that's, that's a good way to for people to move. But do consumers actually know it's from VIN Connect? Like, is it, or is that even a feasibility for them to find out the other VIN Connect lists? Is it obvious or is it a pure white label? Yeah, it's customers know that they're dealing with, that they're required to sort of deal with VIN Connect to facilitate the transaction and make the logistics happen. And so we're not sort of 
hiding the fact that VinConnect sits in the middle of this. But VinConnect, again, isn't the reason they do it. So they know we exist, but it's not driven by us. Got it. You, different places, again, on our website and the sign-up and things, you, you know, it will mention that VinConnect has other partners too. And, you know, if you want to click here, you can go see those. But we really don't want to get in the way of our wineries and their direct relationships. So we try to be very careful about how and when we do that. We don't put a flyer in the box so that when you open your box from X, there's, hey, there's a bunch of other stuff you can buy. We don't, we don't do that kind of stuff. And we, again, we figure if Camus wouldn't do it for Silver Oaks wines, then we're careful about that. Makes sense. Makes sense. So if you had to like boil it down to like the top three benefits that a winery sees from working with FinConnect or using your solution, what would you say those are? Well, I mean, I think the first and foremost benefit is, you know, wineries can't do this themselves, generally speaking, outside the U.S. There are a couple of individual wineries who have implemented things a bit like this, but it's incredibly difficult from a legal and logistical perspective for them to sort of be able to deliver this kind of a solution. And so first and foremost, the benefit is for the first time, they can actually have a direct relationship with customers in the U.S. and all of the attendant benefits that, that come with that. You know, I think the first and foremost of those is having a communication channel directly to people who have effectively opted in, who have given you permission to tell them your stories and sell them your wines. And so it's not broadcasting out to the masses. It's people who've opted in. They've put their hand behind their ear and leaned across the table and said, tell me your stories. And the opportunities that that presents then for the wineries from a marketing perspective in terms of making sure the game of telephone is now a direct connection instead of a bunch of leaps, whether that's introducing new wines telling the stories of the history of the family or particular vintage characteristics and those sorts of things, all of that helps knit together the relationship much stronger between the winery brand and the, the consumer who happens to be passionate about that winery. But it also leads to a bunch of other attendant benefits that, that sort of go beyond that, which is it, it opens the door to doing things like you know, we, we had several wineries back when travel was a thing who, when they come to the U.S., you know, wineries typically visit markets, ride around with distributors and, and, and uh, visit retailers and do dinners in restaurants and things. And the typical restaurant dinner is, you know, the winery shows up and the restaurant sells the seats and the winemaker gives their speech, his or her speech. But the customers that are served are customers of the retailer that sponsors that are customers of the restaurant. Now that the winery knows who their own customers are, the winery can do their own dinner in a restaurant where the winery is inviting the winery's customers to bring wines from their cellar to share. The winery can bring things. And we can deliver to the wineries all of the information about, you know, not only can we invite all of their mailing list customers within 100 miles of Manhattan to dinner, but for the attendees who show up, we have all the data on who they are, how long they've been a member, what they've purchased, and all of that information. So it really helps the wineries do a better job of serving these people who represent their sort of most passionate brand-aware customers in the U.S. Now, that's a very small percentage of their overall U.S. customer base, but that's the group that kind of by definition is the strongest brand ambassadors for those wineries. And we really help the wineries connect with those people and mobilize them, if you want to think about it that way. So are you helping wineries track sales retention, like so people are buying every vintage 
uh, from them. So they're seeing, so, cause that's sometimes maybe a black box in the typical retail channel or even the, the restaurant channel that they don't see who's actually buying it. But now you can see, Hey, this person's bought the last five vintages. Or, is that something that you're helping illuminate that data for them? Absolutely. Yeah. All of our wineries have access to all of the data for all of the orders and transactions related to all of the releases they've ever done. So we have a, a sort of a dashboard portal that the wineries can log into and see for every release, how many people got the email, how many people opened it, how many people ordered, who the people are that ordered, how much they ordered. And from a customer perspective, they can dial into any individual customer and see how many times that customer's ordered, what they've ordered, any customer service issues associated with it. It's all in one big integrated data set. Now, to be honest with you, most of our customers don't use that data like we in the U.S. would aggressively use that data, but a few do, and more and more are interested in it, and they love knowing even if they don't aggressively use it, that the data is there and it belongs to them. And again, I mean, it's, I mean, most of our wineries can't even get depletion data for Pete's sake in individual markets, much less know who the customer is. Now, again, you know, they come to the U.S. market and if once a year they're in Dallas and they do a dinner at a, at a place and the same customer comes and that customer came to visit Italy once, you know, I mean, they can connect a few dots that way, but we're able to do in concert with them is so much more sophisticated and powerful than that. They really appreciate it. So when you're pitching this to wineries or wineries are connecting to you, do you actually have an overall number of people who buy from year to year? What is, is there like an aggregate number for FinConnect, the ratio at which people buy from one vintage to the next? There is. We don't necessarily talk about that because it really differs depending on winery to winery and sort of the strength of the brand. Certain brands have incredibly deep roots with their customers here. People like Chateau Moussard is a great example of that. Their conversion rates on releases, the rate at which people order and the consistency of those orders is among the best, maybe the best in the entire VidConnect customer base. Many of our other, our other wineries that are very great brands and whatever just don't have that same level of traction. So it really, really is kind of a winery by winery thing. You know, the good news about businesses that are direct to consumer in this way and that live online is we have enormous amounts of data. So we, we know winery by winery, again, open rates, conversion rates, average selling prices, lifetime value of the customer, all of that data is very available and, and tangible. But for any individual winery, it really depends on their brand and the circumstances of that. So it's, uh, you know, one can only infer so much from sort of the aggregate data, I guess. So what's in store? What's the future of VidConnect? More growth, I hope. You know, we've been in business for about 10 years. When we launched, we had two wineries. We now have 65 winery partners. You know, one of the real big changes in the past year has been just interest in what we're doing in terms of inbound from wineries. You know, three or four years ago, I was sort of the Pied Piper going to Europe, uh, visiting wine regions, visiting wineries at Provine, telling the story of why it might be important for wineries outside the U.S. to participate in the direct-to-consumer opportunity that's here, a few of whom got it, many of whom didn't really get it or weren't really sure what the value add would be. And, you know, through... The impact of the pandemic and the real dislocation in the restaurant channel for many of these wineries, and again, for, for our kinds of wineries, for most of them, a, a significant portion, if not the majority of their business goes through restaurants rather than retail here in terms of fine dining establishments in the U.S., having that channel just vaporize made them think more urgently about other creative things they could do to strengthen or find alternate routes to market here in the U.S., and as a result of that, our phone basically has been ringing off the hook for the last year. 
We added 16 new winery partners last year. We've added four new ones this year already. We'll have four more behind that in a couple of weeks. And it's exciting for us to have now people coming to us and saying, hey, we've been thinking about this direct-to-consumer thing, and we think this is really interesting. We need to be doing it. And we figured out there's no way for us to do this ourselves, so could you guys help us, which is you know just 180 degrees from the way it was four or five years ago. So you will see a lot more growth from us in that context, just adding more wineries and more flagship wineries, I think. You know, I think that... From a technology perspective, there are some investments we're making now in in terms of our sort of commerce platform, if you will, and the customer service experience that will provide an even smoother and more familiar buying experience for customers. So we're excited to roll that out here in the next couple of months. And to be honest with you, you know, we're really looking forward to the end of the pandemic or at least the end of some of the travel restrictions and things because... I got to believe, at least for speaking for me and probably for you guys as well, I've got a lot of pent-up travel demand. (laughs) I think a lot of other Americans are in the same boat, particularly people who are wine fans and just the opportunity to get out and go do some of these things that we haven't been able to for the last 12 or 18 months is going to lead to a whole bunch of hospitality and, and a lot of growth in the list of the wineries we've been working with. And so definitely more growth in a variety of ways for VinConnect. So, Kevin, with every guest, we always ask them to do a wrap-up where they make a prediction, a lasting trend in a fizzling fad. And we'd love for you to direct it towards winery mailing list or even direct-to-consumer communication for wineries. Uh, you know, a lasting trend being something that you think is just starting to build and has enduring growth. And then a fizzling fad is something that was popular and you see now fading away. Uh, I was wondering if you, had, you could make some predictions here for us. Sure, I'm happy to do that. Lasting trend. I, I guess I would say the lasting trend would be an increasing mix shift toward direct-to-consumer. That has been happening in the U.S. wine market for the last 10 years. Essentially, all of the growth in wine in the U.S. has been through the direct-to-consumer channel. Traditional channels are flat, and the growth all comes from DTC. That's obviously exploded in the last 12 to 15 months as a result of the pandemic. And you know, I just don't think that's going backwards. I mean, maybe a little bit with people sort of getting back out in the world. But, you know, I think in the same way that, you know, things like Zoom and other behaviors, a whole new category of people got exposed to new behaviors that they hadn't used before and have figured out that, hey, you know, they tried them because they had to and it actually works pretty well. And, you know, I'm not necessarily going to go back to doing it the way I was before. And so, I think we had a huge new cohort of people buying wine direct to consumer and now they know that it works and it's safe and it's, better in some ways, and that will just continue. We won't grow at the same rates we have before, but we've created a whole new population of people who are now open to that in a way that they weren't before. And I think that's, we're just not going backwards on that. And what about something that's fizzling? Yeah, fizzling fad, to think about this, this is a little more dicier off the top of my head. You know, I think a lot of creative innovation has been done in terms of live streams and live tasting. And a lot of, you know, we've done that with some of our wineries. A lot of wineries in the in the U.S. and the domestic market have been very sophisticated at that very quickly. And, and I think a lot of people have had a lot of traction with that. I think to a degree, some of that will stay for some of the same reasons I, I mentioned earlier that people have gotten exposed to it. But, you know, some of the other drivers of that are, are absolutely going to change. If people are back in the office, they're not as home as much. They're not looking for a distraction at four in the afternoon after a long day of Zooming. I just think that there will be judicious use of that and it can still be effective. But I just think the the volume and flow of the sort of the scheduled live tasting thing 
is going to retrench a fair bit from where it was, particularly when people have the opportunity to get back out and whether it's going all the way to Europe again to experience hospitality and meet with these winemakers in person or just in the local Italian restaurant when uh, Giovanni Manetti from Fotodi is, is finally back in town and they can go see him again and shake his hand. I think there's just real lasting sort of value to that personal experience that you can't replicate in Zoom. And so, again, I still think there'll be a use of that, but it, you know, it, it's going to fade back to more strategic rather than general purpose. Well, those are two great predictions. Peter, I want to thank you for taking the time to educate us about mailing lists for non-domestic for international wineries. It's, uh, it's very eye-opening and something I never really thought of, but now that we've talked about it, it totally makes sense. Well, uh, thanks very much for you guys for having me. It's been a great pleasure to have the chance with you and to chat with you and and to field so many uh, questions. So it's a pleasure to speak with you and to your audience. And we'll look forward to having the chance to maybe get together in person when things allow. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.